Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning church. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 21. <coughs> John chapter 21. Our attention will be this morning from verses 15 to verse 19. Hear God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. Well, this morning, church, I want to exhort us regarding Jesus' great project of restoration. On this Communion Sunday, as we come together to the table, the subject of God's restoration, I believe, is worthy of our attention. Restoration, renewal, repair could be said to be the major theme of the entire Scriptures. The, the grand scheme of the scriptures can really be summarized this way. God creates, man destroys, God renews. God makes, man breaks, God fixes. God invites, man enslaves, and God redeems. But this scheme is not just found in the big narrative of the Bible, it is also found throughout the many sub-narratives, the many sub-stories within the scriptures. The big scheme, of course, refers to God's creation of man. God creates man, giving him work to do in the Edenic temple and in the world, and then man disobeys God. You know the story. And after man disobeys God, he is cast out of the Edenic temple and wanders the earth in hard labor and toil, 
And then God promises a liberator who will free man from this hard labor and bring him back to last and full fellowship with God. That's the, that's the grand story. That's the grand story of God's restorative work in the scriptures. But we also see little shades of this story throughout the narratives that we, found throughout, that we find throughout the Bible. When Sarah was shamed in her barrenness, God comes and gives her a son. When Hagar was chased out of Abraham's house and left for dead, <clears throat> it is Elroy, the God who sees, who, who refreshes her, and Ishmael, her son. When Israel's sons sell their brother Joseph to slavery, we see later God restoring not only Joseph to freedom, but also his brothers and his entire family. You remember, of course, the story of Naaman the Syrian, who is struck by leprosy, a disease that is the ultimate illustration of man's problem of decay. And God renews his skin as though it were a baby's. The scripture, friends, is chock full, loud, of proclamative work that tells us who this God is. This God that we worship, the God of the Bible, is God the Restorer. Which brings us this morning to you, dear Christian, beloved Christian. No doubt you are here this morning having tasted failure or brokenness in your life. At some point in time, having been a believer for a while, you crossed a line which you thought you would never cross. Perhaps you'd crossed the line before and you thought you'd never cross it again, but you did. Failure. You were struck with your own failure. God started a great and obvious work in your life, but somehow you, found, you have found a way, perhaps time and time again, of, of doing something to threaten to derail God's work in your life, to derail God's great project of salvation in your life. The question then becomes, what is to be said of you? After you have messed things up, what is to be said of you? Are you to be discarded? The things that you have broken, are they now worthless to be thrown away? Has hypocrisy disqualified you from entering back into Eden? Has your temper rendered you unable to enjoy the depths of God's grace? Has your betrayal of Christ, nay, your repeated re betrayal of Christ, dislodged you from enjoying his presence, and not only enjoying his presence, but also even participating in his mission? What is to be said of you now? This question is a serious one for me to ask you as we draw near the close of another year. I stand here, Michael stands here, Sunday after Sunday, exhorting, rebuking, and calling you to walk with your Lord and to respond to his word by changing your behavior and your affections. We do this every Sunday. Together on Sunday mornings, we have plumbed and plumbed the depths of God's word to see what it is that God calls us to. But my friend, what, have, what happens when you have failed to respond to what God has said? What happens if you were convicted because you were convicted last time and you didn't do anything about your conviction? What if when we had communion 
two Sundays ago, you thought about a particular person that you were supposed to make right with, and you didn't. What must now happen with your failure? The story that is in front of us is a story of Peter's restoration back to his place after he had failed miserably. And in this tale, we will see three things regarding God's work of restoration. God's work of restoration is first, personal. God's work of restoration is second, painful. And God's work of restoration is predicted. Three Ps. You could say the three Ps of Peter's restoration is personal, painful, and promised or predicted. We pick up the story here in verse 15 in our text, uh, in John's Gospel, where he is detailing the Lord's resurrection appearances to the disciples. At the beginning of the chapter here, at the beginning of chapter 21, the Lord is not around after the Lord had appeared to them multiple times, and so Peter decides to go fishing with the disciples. Now, many commentators believe that there's something wrong with Peter going fishing here, but I really don't see anything in the text that suggests that Peter's fishing was somehow a problem at this particular point. Well, they're out fishing, and then the Lord reveals himself to them by telling them to throw their fish, their, their, their net on the other side, and then they recognize that it is the Lord, so they come out of the boat, and they come and they have breakfast with the Lord Jesus. And so we pick up the story at verse 15, after they've had breakfast with their resurrected Lord. And this is what happens in verse 15. The Lord Jesus turns from the disciples and looks Peter square in the face and asks him this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The first thing that we are to notice is that Peter's restoration is personal. This is seen in the fact, clearly in the fact that Jesus' first question to him is this. Do you love me more than these? Now, there is some discussion, of course, around the Greek here because it is not entirely clear what Jesus is asking Peter. Uh, the Greek leaves it a bit hanging. What exactly is he asking him? And even in the English, you can see something of this. Is he asking Peter if Peter loves Jesus more than Peter loves these disciples? So he says, do you love me more than these? Is he asking him, do you, love, do you Peter, love me than you, more than you love these disciples? Well, we can say no to that. That doesn't seem to fit with the context and certainly does not seem to fit with the book of John. So the, the second option of what Jesus could be asking him is, is, is he asking Peter if Peter loves Jesus more than these fishing materials, this fishing gear that's round, because they, they went fishing and then there's now fishing gear around here. Is he asking him that, do you love me more than you love fishing? Well, we can, we can say no to that because <clears throat> it would appear a bit odd to ask only Peter that because they all went fishing. And there's a number of other reasons why we can reject that one. Uh, the last option is that Jesus is asking Peter if Peter loves Jesus more than the other disciples love Jesus. Did you see that? Do you love me more than these others love me? So, in, one, in essence, he is comparing Peter's personal love for Jesus compared to the disciples' love for Jesus. Now, if you're sitting here, you might be wondering, why would Jesus compare Peter's love for him 
with the, the disciples' love for him. That seems a bit odd, something a bit weird for the Lord Jesus to do. Why would you say, do you love me more than John loves me? Well, for that, to understand that, you need a bit of context. And so for that, come with me to John chapter 13 and verse 36. Because this is really where this is picking up from, uh, from what happened there and what happened later in chapter 18. Uh, in John 13, 36, the Lord Jesus is, is telling his disciples that he is going somewhere and he's going somewhere alone where they can't follow him. And of course, Peter, ever the, the brave, he speaks up in verse 36 and he says this, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answers him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter here is boldly proclaiming that he will stand with Jesus. Wherever, whatever happens to Jesus, he will be there. Throughout the rest of this discourse, when, the, when one of the disciples speaks, they always speak on behalf of the group. You know, Lord, we this. Lord, show us the Father. Lord, do this for us. Teach us this. They always talk in terms of a group. But notice that Peter here is talking only about himself. No, I will stand with you. Whatever happens, I mean, not Peter himself. You know, if he had a sermon, if he had a, 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 a clan name, he would be saying his clan names now. Me, not Peter, Kacheni, I will stand with you. Whatever happens. He's his own praise singer in one sense here. I will, I will do this. I will stand. And in fact, this becomes clearer when you look at uh, uh, Matthew's version of events, when Matthew talks about this, when Matthew writes about this particular interaction here. This is how Matthew records it. Peter says in, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter answers the Lord and says, Lord, though all of these fall away because of you, I will never fall away. See, and then the Lord tells him, truly, truly, I'll say you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter, can't, Peter stands up again. No, 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 Lord, you are confused. Verse 35 of Matthew 26, Peter says this, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And then the rest of the, the, the disciples join in the chorus. Yes, what Peter's saying, we're saying the same thing. Peter had proclaimed his great love for the Lord Jesus above the other disciples, even in the face of the Lord telling him that he will fail. Peter was bright-eyed. He was confident. He knew in his heart that when it comes to worship, the person that he worships is this man in front of him, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He knew that he was fully and wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus and so he did not have any qualms about saying that he will stand come any temptation. Now, you might start thinking, of course, about later, what happens later, which we know when he betrayed the Lord. But is there any reason really for us at this moment to doubt that there's any deception in Peter's part? To think that there's some kind of deception going on with Peter. Is Peter deceiving himself or is he trying to deceive the Lord Jesus? 
There's no reason. The text does not give us any reason to make us think that Peter is being duplicitous. All the evidence points to a man who really loved the Lord Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of John, we are seeing evidence upon evidence of Peter's love and singular devotion to Jesus. You'll remember, of course, when the crowds deserted Jesus in John chapter 6 after he had fed them. And then Jesus, after the whole crowds have left him, Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, Are you going to desert me as well? Who is it that spoke up? It was Peter. And what did he say? He said, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In chapter 13 of John, it was Peter who refused to, uh, to have his feet washed by the Lord Jesus. Why was this? It wasn't because Peter was proud. It's because of his high reverence of the Lord Jesus. He believed that this work of washing feet is, is above Christ. Christ is the Lord. Why would you wash my feet? You're above this. And then when the Lord Jesus explains to him, Peter, I must wash you. I must wash your feet. Otherwise, you'll have nothing to do with me. What does Peter say? He says, then you're not going to only wash my feet, but wash my entire body. If it, means that I, if, if it means I'm going to participate in you by you washing me, then don't just stop at my feet. My ankles need some washing as well. It was, was it not also Peter who cut off the ear of Malchus the soldier who dared lay the hand on Jesus on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed? You remember that? No, the, the Peter had indeed a track record of loyalty, of love, of devotion, of reverence, of worship at the feet of this man. <clears throat> we can say full mouth that God had done a marvelous, wondrous work in Peter's life. That kind of devotion to Jesus Christ does not come naturally. That kind of complete devotion, complete giving over to the words of Christ does not come naturally. It comes by the work of the, of the Lord. But then, of course, you know what happened next. When Christ was alone at his trial was, and his trial was ongoing, this Simon Peter denied his Lord not once, not twice, but exactly like Jesus said, three times. Twice he denied Jesus to servant girls, to slaves. And the third time he said, he said he didn't know who Jesus was to a group of bystanders who were warming themselves. And on that occasion, actually, Matthew tells us that he even invoked a curse on himself. He swore in saying, really, by my life, I do not know this man. Do not associate me with this man. I do not know him. This Jesus whom he has loved and worshipped for three years by this point. Friends, Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ reveals something about discipleship. Failure in the Christian life is real. Failure in the Christian life is to be expected. Failure is a feature while we are in this body of death. Failure is something that we're going to have to deal with. I can assure you, Christian, if you think you have not failed yet, there are only two possibilities. If you think you haven't failed yet, you think that you have such a stellar track record, you haven't failed yet, there's only two possibilities. Either one, your failure is still coming, or two, you have already failed and you're just delusional about it. You're unaware of your failure. You're, 
you're really still stuck in the failure. You're not seeing that you have categorically failed. The denial of Christ comes in many different format, formats. Peter's denial was a denial of cowardice, where he cowered in the face of ridicule and persecution. But there are many other denials of the Lord Jesus. There is the denial of Jesus' worship, where we choose to worship other things instead of him. There is a denial of Jesus' devotion, where we enslave ourselves to other things in all, instead of only being his slaves. There is a denial of trust, where we do not trust his stated word and choose to live by sight instead of by faith. But I would argue that the biggest of these categories that we are prone to deny the Lord Jesus is in the denial of his lordship, where we choose to just not obey him. We choose because to do whatever seems right to us because of our emotional state at the time. This is how I feel, and because this is how I feel, this is what I'm going to do. That is our most frequent denial of the Lord, our most frequent denial of him, and we are denying his lordship over our lives over and above our emotional states. Failure, friends, denial of Jesus is rampant. So in the face of, of, of us denying him, in the face of us failing, happening so often, what does God do to his great project of saving us? What does God do? What is God's, what is God's response to us failing, to us denying him? Well, I want you to hold that thought, and I want you to think with me. Before we go to the God of the Bible and see what the God of the Bible does, I want you to think with me, what do other gods do? What do other gods do? The other gods that people have, that they worship, that they go to, that they flock to, what do they do in the face of the failure of their adherents? What happens? Let me give you some, I'll give you at least two examples. In our African ancestral religion, if you have failed, if you have failed, if you've buried somebody in the wrong place that you're not supposed to bury them, or somebody got married in the wrong way, or if you, you bought a car and was not sacrificed for, uh, you did something wrong that angered the ancestors, what, what do the prophets, what do the Abatandas and the Sangomas tell you to do? They say to you, you must sacrifice something to appease the ancestors, yes? They say to you that the ancestors are angry, they are revolted at you, and right now they are against everything you're doing because this thing happened 15 years ago. It is punitive. You have angered the ancestors and they will destroy you even though they say they are your blood. They are your blood. But because you've done this one thing wrong, they are entirely against you now. Your children, your work, everything that you do, they will destroy it until you sacrifice and fix this one thing. Let me tell you, that's a threat. There's no love there. That's a threat. There's no love there. There's no restorative work there. It's just an aversion of anger, an appeasement. Can you imagine living with a person like that? Imagine living with a person whom your only job is to ensure that they don't get angry. Would you live with a person like that? Just, 
Just stay out of their way. I mean, you, you don't have fellowship with this person. They don't, they, 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 don't, they don't tell you they're proud of you. They love you. All it is is that you just must make sure that you don't do anything to make them mad. Have you ever lived with a person like that? Perhaps some of you have lived with a father or, or a relative or someone or a mother or somebody like that in the house who's just oh, whom you're always walking on eggshells on. Is that a wonderful life? No love, just it's not even a matter of trying to keep this person happy. It's just trying to keep this person unangry, if that's a word. Just try to keep them not angry and then live your life. Just don't step on their toes, just move aside. No, there's no love there. There's no restorative work. It's just anger. This is not something, this is not something you want. This is not a kind God to have. And if your, if your God is not the ancestors, well, what other gods do people have? People. People have people as their gods. In a recent article entitled, What We Fear More Than Death, Dr. Pat Delacour says, research shows that there is scarcely anything that people fear more than being ridiculed by others. There is nothing that, there's scarcely anything that people fear more than being ridiculed by others. Whether it's public speaking, whether it's acceptance by peers, we all live to some degree with the fear of people ridiculing us when we have failed. Everyone is, is trying to strive to either perfection or something like it. The expectations of a society that increasingly only knows ridicule and not restoration are burdensome on a whole swath of people who have to fake excellence or die the death of a million opinions. No, friends, this is not the way. These gods... Go ahead, add whatever other God. These gods are not the way. These gods, when you give yourself to them, they will never restore. They will constantly and continually destroy. And they constantly are seeking their pound of flesh from you. But that's not the God of the Bible. What does the God of the Bible do? What does Jesus do? Well, that text tells us. In verse 15 of our text, tells us, He restores he comes personally back to Peter and he restores him. Peter responds to this first question by saying, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. What Jesus is saying to him is this, in front of all of the disciples that he had failed and his failure was known, he's saying in front of them, I want you to confess your love to me and do what I called you to do at the first. There is to be no change in your station because of what you did. You are, nothing's going to change because of what you did. There is to be no change. You are to be the teacher of my people, the very work that I promised you would do the first time I called you three years ago. And three times the Lord Jesus asks him, and three times Peter responds. And on each time the Lord uses a different metaphor to restore Peter back to his place. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The indicative, that is the command, is public and clear. Peter's denial of Jesus is not the last word. Jesus has restored him now by asking him this question these three times. 
in front of the, in front of the, the disciples, he has restored him to his place and work. Friends, this is what is crucial about Jesus' restoration. And I want you to hear this. Failure for the child of God does not never means the end. Failure for the child of God never means the end. Now look, depending on your personality, you might be prone to believe that failure is the end. Ah, we've tried this many times and it hasn't worked. We've worked on this, it's not worked, or I did this, I messed up. What's the point anymore? Such and such a thing that God now calls me to do is very hard. What's the, what's the point of this any longer? But friends, in the Christian life, failure is only the end if God is not the one who is calling us to stand up and keep running. The best sportsmen, we always hear this from sportsmen, whatever sport you follow, rugby, soccer, running, athletics, whatever it is that you hear, you always hear this. The best sportsmen are the ones who can make a mistake in the game and not let it affect their performance for the rest of the game. If they make a mistake, the mental aspect of it is to make the mistake, fix it real quick, and then move on. If a sportsman allows one mistake to be in their head and emotionally control them, that is what usually causes them to falter in the end. God's persistence, friends, in restorative work means that only when your soul has left your body can we say it is the end. Only then. But while you still have breath in you, and while God is still working, and God is being patient with us, your failure is not the end. But in saying that, we must also say this. You must be willing, like the sports person, to get up once you have fallen down. And what does that mean? Firstly, and primarily, it means properly dealing with the issue. Properly, categorically dealing with whatever the issue is. And this leads us to our second point. The first point is that restoration is personal. The second aspect here is that restoration is painful. Did you notice that the Lord Jesus asked him the same question three times? And on the third time, Verse 17, look at what happens in verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And what happened with Peter? Peter was grieved because he had asked him a third time. And he keeps saying the same thing, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Notice this repetition. Jesus asked Peter three times, clearly wanting him to remember that three-time denial that he had done. There is much discussion by commentators why the Lord Jesus repeats this question three times. Uh, some argue that because in the Greek, Jesus and Peter here using different words for love, and that is the reason why it is repeated. But I certainly reject that view because throughout John's gospel, John interchanges the Greek words for love all the time to a point where he doesn't seem to even care about the, dis the, the small nuances between them. Uh, the most convincing argument here is that the Lord Jesus is asking him the same question three times because Peter denied him three times. Jesus is digging deep into what Peter did, reminding him of it so as to restore him back. And by the third time, he is distressed. 
The word used here is a strong one. He is distressed. He is in anguish because the Lord, it's, it appears as though the Lord does not believe him when he says he loves him. Peter here is emotionally traumatized, we could say, by Jesus' line of questioning. But friends, every restoration requires that we confront the issue at hand properly and constructively. You with me? Every restoration requires that we need to deal with the issue. There is no restoration while papering over whatever the issue was. The issue must be dealt with. Mark this. No person will ever know the joys of forgiveness if he does not first know the humiliation of confession. If you confess but leave things out, you will never know the peace that surpasses understanding. The Holy Spirit will not be mocked. If you play fast and loose with the truth, trying to preserve an image of yourself in front of others, you will never enjoy the fullness that comes with true forgiveness. Children, teenagers, hear me. You are building up walls between yourself and true joy when you lie and obfuscate the truth. When you lie and you hide the truth, you must come clean. You must come clean and entrust yourself to God's forgiveness by having everything out in the open in the way that you must, to the level that you must, when we are dealing with whatever the issue is. Restoration, friends, is painful. Restoration is painful. If you've ever had to go and restore a friendship, if you've ever had to, to go and, and fix something that has happened, it is a painful process. It is not easy. David was restored, but boy, it was painful. We always talk about David being restored and the great sin that he did, but we have to think, on the road to restoration, there was a lot of pain. A baby died on the road to his restoration. And friends, you see, this is where most people fail. You don't want to go through the restoration process. You snicker at the restoration process. And so where does that lead? It usually leads to the other gods who don't restore anything. Usually it leads somewhere else. You leave God's restoration process and you go to the other gods who only destroy. Remember something. Peter wasn't the only person who, who, who betrayed the Lord Jesus that night, was he? Who else betrayed Jesus that night? Judas. And we all know how that story ended. See, there is a way to run away from the pain of restoration and go to other gods. Time would fail to talk about others that the scripture shows us who did not want to go through the restoration process. Ahab, Jezebel, Saul. Do you remember these stories? Saul even chose to go to a Sangoma to bring up a dead Samuel instead of going to God and praying and dealing with the consequences and asking for forgiveness. They all chose death instead of being restored to God in repentance. Friends, do not follow the example. Go through the pain of God's restorative work. Go through it, confess, walk through it, confront the issue, deal with the issue, and then enjoy the benefits of God's restorative process. The story is told about the baptism of King Angus by St. Patrick in the middle of the 5th century. 
Sometime during the baptism, Patrick leaned on his sharp-pointed stick and stabbed the king's foot without knowing it. And after the baptism was over, St. Patrick looked down at all the blood, realizing that he had stabbed King Angus on the foot and there was all this blood. And then he went to the king and he begged his forgiveness. And then he said to him, but king, why did you suffer this pain in silence? And the king replied, I thought it was part of the ritual. I thought it was part of the baptism that you stab people's feet. That's why I didn't complain. I want this baptism, so I thought you had to stay, that I have to be stabbed to get it. I didn't know. Think like King Angus. He thought that to be baptized, you get stabbed. And for that reason, he went through the pain without complaint. You with me? He went through the, went through the pain without complaint. It was painful, but he thought it was part of the ritual. In the same way, consider the pain of humiliation a part and parcel of God's restorative work. It is worth it. And do you know why it's worth it? Because of our third point that we find in verse 18. Here's our third point. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to, to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. We've seen that Peter's restoration was personal. It was painful. And now that we see that it is predicted or promised or prophesied, I, I couldn't land on which P to use. He will glorify God in his death. He will be restored in function in the manner in which he was supposed to be. The Lord Jesus here is saying, there's going to come a day, Peter, where you will not deny me. You will stand and you will get killed for it. Of course, when John writes these words here, Peter has long been dead. John's gospel is written long after Peter's death. And so that's why John adds that little explanation there in verse 19. The disciples wouldn't have known what Jesus meant when he said, when he said this, little, this little idiom, this little parable here in verse 18. But, Pete, but, but John now understands it with hindsight because he's seen how Peter died. And what he's saying here is that this, this was a prophecy, a prediction of how Peter would die. The tale from church history tells us that Peter was killed by the Romans and he asked to be crucified, not in the same way that his Lord was, but to be crucified upside down because he did not see himself to be worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. While Peter had failed, his stand, his restoration was evident and it was coming and there came a day where he did not deny Christ anymore. There came a day where he died because of his faith in Christ. This is why the pain of restoration is worth it, friends, because Jesus is a restorer. For all of us who are in Christ, you can find a, a, a number, hundreds of, of promises that say we will last until the end. Your failure is not the end. If you are in Christ, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will stand all the way to the end. Why? Because Jesus is a restorer. 
Jesus majors in fixing, in mending. So what must you do after you have failed? Well, like the child that grips tight his mother, even though his mother has applied painful discipline, you also must hold tight to Jesus even while he applies painful discipline. The avoidance of pain is the avoidance of God's wonderful work. But the the truth of the story shows us everything about Christ. He is unlike the other gods who will punitively destroy you when you have failed them. No, he will restore you. But, But just obey him. Follow his process. And you will find yourself shining further down the line more than you are now. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this table, we are thankful that you are a restoring king. If you were not a restoring king, you should have destroyed us a long time ago. We have done things here represented, things that are shocking. We have done things that we are ashamed of, things that sometimes come back to our minds, in our hearts and in our minds that make us sometimes live with a little bit of shame. But because you are a restorer, we have hope that no matter the fall, if we turn and cry out to you, we will be saved. And we pray, Lord, that you'd continue your work. We praise you for this work, and we ask that you'd continue it. Continue it in each life that is here. Every man, woman, and child, restore us to our rightful relationship with God that God deserves because God created us to worship him. Restore us to right fellowship. Cleanse us of all impurities and help us, Lord, to walk aright before you. In your name we pray. Amen.